0: everyone welcome to the rumcast i am will hookinga over here and on the other line from miami florida i've got john gola what's up everybody hey john so i know you are still probably basking in the warm perpetual <laughs> miami afterglow um, of the miami rum congress yes. which i know you recently attended um i you know a lot of listeners we've, we've exchanged emails with and stuff were also there i know you said hello to quite a few people but for those of us like me who unfortunately could not make the trip down to miami um for what sounded like a really great event uh give me i, I know you tasted a bunch of rums i certainly got like nonstop texts from you yeah. kind of like throwing it in my face what i wasn't getting to try thanks for that <laughs> by the way um <laughs> Real quick, give me like your your top only like the really good two, ones, you know, which was almost yeah. all of them, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, give me real quick your your top uh, two or three rums you tasted before we we jump into the episode, which uh, which I don't want to push too far back because um, we do have a really exciting interview to get to with Richard Seal. But before that, give me give me your top two two or three memorable rums you were able to taste at Miami Rum Congress.
1: So it was a great event, and I'm really really happy. This was the first time I've been able to go, even though I live in Miami. Uh, it was the second annual one, so I missed the first. One. Um, All right. But I really enjoyed the event. um, And as you mentioned, there were so many uh, good rums and good educational opportunities. uh, So I was able to try a lot of them to narrow it down is tough. Because there was a, a really good selection of a lot of very well, good is, rums. this
0: is this is the this is the rum cast where we ask the tough questions, John. <laughs> so I don't need your excuses right now. I just I just need you to give me the good stuff, okay? Fair
1: enough, fair enough. I I will make sure to give you the, the top of the top, and uh, and yeah. make sure you're jealous for for having not been able to try them. Um, thank you. So uh, I would say leading off, no surprise, uh, for me is uh, Foursquare Sagacity. Uh, first time I got to try that and uh, I know it's going to be on shelves soon and, uh, makes sense. I guess we're for, for this episode coming up where we get to talk with Richard Seal from Foursquare. Right. And, um, uh, talk
0: a little bit about Sagacity and the exceptional cast selections, which it is one of, or the ECS, as you will hear Richard refer to it. Right.
1: And, uh, and I was also able to try, uh, Nobiliary, which was very exciting since I know that's a little longer off. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Not not quite out yet. Yeah. Awesome. So both of those were excellent. Um I think Sagacity uh appealed to me a little bit more, only uh from the perspective of it was unique in mm-hmm. in its uh what it was doing with the the ex Bourbon and the um ex Madeira. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was great and I cannot wait to get that. So that was one uh with a one plus for nobiliary because that was awesome. Um I would say a couple others that stuck out MOBA. MOBA's doing amazing things. Uh, the South African rum, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, MOBA from South Africa, and uh, they had their almost their whole line there. Uh, and I tried uh, all of those. And the high ester rum, uh, unaged, uh, really, really stuck out to me as a, a highlight from the show. Um, mm-hmm. As as good as anything uh, from Hampton or some of the other distillers that we know make wow. those. yeah yeah wow that that
0: is uh yeah. that's that's high praise i'm i you, you frightened me a little bit with that. it is um, uh yeah
1: <laughs> i'm hoping we get a chance to maybe talk with moba or a representative from moba or maybe newt uh who was there at the show at some point soon to talk about it more because it, it it really was good i don't think i'm alone in that i heard a lot of people okay. also saying that they really enjoyed their rums and and again and that's a can-
0: that's a cane juice rum right yes that, so that's okay.
1: cane juice and um I'm I don't think uh that's not a knock on anybody else because there's there was amazing rums there from from other people as well that I got to try. I just uh I thought that that one was a really uh flavorful, impactful, and almost I would say unforgettable rum. Wow. so that was great. high praise. Uh, yeah and and there were so many other ones there that I I would uh, I would be belaboring the point and uh just just because I'm making you jealous. Um, <laughs> but I will mention also that, uh, Maggie, uh, you saw the picture, uh, made sure to make, yes. you know, get a picture with Maggie and with Eric K, uh, to, right. to, uh, two previous sh- Rumcast guests. Right. I wanted to show you how much fun I was having, um, uh-huh. and, you know, why you should have come. Uh, it did look fun. Yeah. Uh, so that was cool. And the, uh, privateer 2017, that's re- being released from Bellier. It was there. Right. And uh-huh. it has got, got to discussed in that. Rumcast episode number three. Yes. Uh, so I got to try that. and That was uh, amazing. It's a really great rum as well. One of my first sips of Privateer since I'm way down here in Miami. And I know uh, it's just now some of the distribution for Privateer is getting down to Florida. Uh, so... it's trickling
0: trickling down into the southeast. Yes.
1: And I ordered a couple of uh, bottles of Distiller's Drawer, which should be here very, very soon. So happy awesome. about that. So, yeah, Miami Ram Congress was awesome. Can't wait for next year. And hopefully we'll get your ass down here for that one. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I do need to make it back down there. Um, it's uh, it's cold in Tennessee right now. <laughs> so um, also on another note, thank you. Uh, I, I know like we did our kind of launch of the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened so far. Um, double extra large thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed on apple Podcasts. that's a huge help as we've said before thank you um so yeah yeah thank you so much for that we're really excited to keep getting these out and very excited about the interview on this episode which as i mentioned earlier is with richard seal um owner and distiller of foursquare rum distillery in barbados uh we you know we just talked about some of their rums if you are a rum lover you are most likely already quite familiar with Foursquare um, you know one of the first names of people you know kind of on our wish list to talk to was Richard so yeah great to get him on the the show for this episode and you know part of the uh, urgency we felt around getting him on was we wanted to uh, talk a little bit more in depth about the Barbados rum GI um, or geographical indication. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is you know you've you've likely seen conversations about this online. If you're in Rome, um, I don't know how you could miss it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so th- to give kind of the quick overview, you know, uh, the the basic definition of what a a GI is is it's basically a sign that's used on products um, to uh, notate a specific geographical origin. Uh, And that has certain that's met certain standards um, or qualities that are kind of due to its origin. So
1: it is what it it is. It makes it what it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So an example of this that everyone has seen is scotch whiskey. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the distillate has to meet certain standards in order to qualify from that. It has to come from a certain place in order to qualify for that. Um, So, you know, part of what we wanted to talk to Richard about is obviously there's been a lot of disagreement over what the GI should be. Um, Where the conversation is right now is, you know, the Barbados government basically tasked the, the four... Uh, big distilleries in Barbados with kind of agreeing on what the standard should be for the GI. So those distilleries are Foursquare, St. Nicholas Abbey, mm-hmm. Mount Gay, and West Indies Rum Distillery, which is owned by Maison Ferrand, uh, the makers of Plantation Rum. And that's where the the disagreements are coming from. So um, Maison Ferrand, uh, West Indies Rum Distillery, they have three primary objections to the, the existing drafts of the GI that the three other distilleries have agreed to. Um, one is the requirement that all Barbados rum should be matured on the island. I believe West Indies Rum Distillery is wanting to mandate just one year of aging mm-hmm. on Barbados um then there's the restriction on wood types for aging they want to expand it beyond just oak and then uh there's the ban on uh sweetening the rum um with uh, you know additives right so um you know i don't want to get too deep into the conversation right there but uh you know it's it's a very interesting topic in the world of rum right now there's a lot of uh you know debate uh conflict emotions on both sides of the argument so we we talked to richard about that but we also want to dig in a little bit more you know it's a recent debate but it's the the GI itself is something that's been in the making for years and I was really curious personally to learn like how does that process even start like who who was writing the first draft how are you going back and forth with all the producers right. and then also most importantly where are things going to go from here because we're at this kind of stalemate with it and so I wasn't really sure you know um you know how how do, how how does Barbados take the next step forward with this what does that look like and then what is the next step after that like if there is a GI then how do you go about getting foreign governments to uh, recognize and respect it so we talk about that a little bit yeah
1: I think we got some good answers to that too and mm-hmm. and also it's fortunate because like you said it's it's really important to talk about that right now but then we also got a chance to talk to him about the history of Foursquare the yes. history of the ECS or the Exceptional Cast series and how that happened
0: yeah you're you're also going to get to hear a little bit about like what may be coming from the ECS, which uh, there, there was some stuff that I was, that did not expect to hear Yeah, uh, that Richard goes into. We also like, if you've ever looked at a four square release and been like, Hmm, how the hell did they come up with that name? Uh, we, yeah. we talked to Richard about that as well. I believe that is 100% of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when you ask people questions about like, you know, where does the idea for the name come from? Like, you always worry that they're just gonna, you know, be like, oh, you know, it's just something I think of. And like, that's that. Like, you always hope that there's going to be some backstory, something mm-hmm. interesting back there. And I feel like there there is that. And we got some of that on this episode. So I'm really excited. Like, just getting to hear that part was like, um, you know, rum nerd heaven for me. So I'm really excited for people to get to hear that. And as you mentioned, um, getting to hear more about the history of Foursquare, yeah. um, because it's it's a really interesting history in that the Seal family's involvement with rum in Barbados dates back to the 1920s. Um, yeah. It wasn't until the the mid 90s that they started distilling their own rum uh with foursquare rum distillery and the foursquare brand so before that they were merchant and blenders who purchased rum for Barbados producers and bottled and sold it under their own brand so you know you know that that's uh that that's a known part of the foursquare story but um you did a good job bringing up with Richard like you know I felt like we hadn't really heard the the inside story of that transition how do you go from uh you know sourcing and bottling and blending rum to making the decision hey we're gonna start making this ourselves and then oh yeah 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 and then over the span of two decades becoming like you know one of the most respected sought after yeah. producers in all of rum
1: yep i think we should just uh, maybe shut up and
0: yeah I'm, I'm gonna go i'm gonna go on and on about this so right now we will just toss it over to the interview and get you started with richard seal
1: Uh, So I'll start it off. So I know you were uh, just at the Miami Rum Congress last week where uh, I saw you there uh, and you do so many in-person events uh, in the name of education of rum, as well as the education about Foursquare and its products. So as the hobby continues to grow and new people are constantly entering into the space and wanting to know more, how is it that you keep from tiring of answering the same type of questions again and again?
2: Um... I would say we don't necessarily answer the same questions because what happens is is that the the understanding of rum is growing and growing. So let's say you're a relatively new, um, you're going to learn from the people uh, who are sort of have learned it over the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. I mean, even when you look at Miami Rum Congress, the Friday is kind of meant to be more educational. And that's been also an evolution from the earliest shows, which were only branded seminars. And so they're, they are quite high level. So we're talking about things like when we were talking about Toror, the, the warehouse, we're talking about things that we wouldn't necessarily have talked about a few years ago because the audience would have been less experienced. So we're now relying on the people who have grown in their own knowledge to guide the new people so it really i i can on it i cannot say that it's the same stuff over and over again we've been actually very fortunate that the audience grows in knowledge and so we do get to speak about more interesting or more complex topics at each show
1: yeah that's encouraging to hear that like as the hobby grows the questions get more in depth and so you've kind of evolved in answering those questions as it goes along that's awesome
0: yeah, I'm curious, if, if you were to go back a few years ago, um, when some of these events were first starting, would you have been surprised then to know that in just a few years you would be talking about stuff like Terroir of the Cellar, for example?
2: Oh, yes. Um, things have gone uh, remarkably well in the last 10 years for Rum. And, you know, one of the things I explained to people is is that each little success leads to the next step. So, you know, 10 years ago, we, you know, we were sort of out there with a, you know, rum like Dory's XO, which, you know, a rum I'm very proud of. But it was that success that led us to then invest in more stocks that, you know, led to a Doris 12 and then led to the ECS. So each step is encouraging. So, or as the way I described it recently is, um, you know, last year I bought some, Very, very expensive pork cast straight out of an Adega, paying more for a cast than I could ever have dreamed that I would have paid. (laughs) But it's possible to do that because I know I can sell a rum for, you know, a price that will make sense for that. Right. So that's what happens every each step. And things have gone, yeah, even better than expected. I mean, sometimes people also ask, for example, with a cast strength, And we have cast strength from today. And I'll tell you the story that, you know, that 10 years ago, if you said to me, I'm going to be doing cast strength, I would say, you know, you're insane. Because here I am already battling to explain to people, you know, that super smooth rum isn't really a super smooth rum. It's loaded up with sugar. And, you know, are you, you know, are you crazy that you think I'm going to put out now a cash strength rum and to make life even more difficult compared to, to, to people who are sort of drinking something, you know, sugared up and the quality criteria being smooth? Well, we've moved so far beyond that. I'm not saying there's lots of people out there who don't drink sweetened rum, and, and, and there always will be. But what's happened is, is that there's a growing audience mm-hmm. who now appreciates you know, the difference between a quality, unadulterated rum. Right. And so what it does is once our audience is there, we respond. So, you know, there's an audience there that wants a, a, a 12-year-old cast strength rum. So guess what? We respond. And it was harder to see that years ago um, hmm. when you were sort of fighting a different battle.
0: You mentioned the idea of kind of like steps in the process that allow you to make those more informed decisions about the future. And one of the things, you know, you talk a lot about with producers is having to have that foresight and that planning, Uh, you know, the decisions you made five, 10 years ago are the decisions that kind of like form your current reality. I'm curious with the exceptional cask selections, um, obviously that required a lot of foresight and planning. um, And some would say, you know, a degree of of risk on your part. Uh, I'm curious if there was a certain point or a certain release or one of those steps that you mentioned where you kind of realized, okay, wow, some of this, uh, laying down some of these age stocks may have really paid off for us.
2: Yes. I mean, as you mentioned, it's a lot of risk. and, And I think that's where sort of my father and myself compliment ourselves quite well, because he's the risk taker. And I'm the one that probably wants to you know, push the envelope on the run making. So you know, you have a, a sort of very synergistic uh, relationship where I want to run, run out and buy the, the best sherry casks or the best pork casks or, or, or whatever. And he's quite open to taking these risks and building stock because my father recognized very, very early that the real future was in age rum. So he was always, always very committed. And it's really because, you know, you have this uh, sort of um, strange scenario where, you know, rum is generally undervalued. Mm -hmm. And when you come to producers, you know, like ourselves and and many others, we're not operating as mass production entities. Mm -hmm. And if we sell undervalue, we will not survive right because the economy is a scale yeah there's an early recognition that the only scenario which we will survive is to play at a very high end and it course it makes total sense for the simple reason that if there's one great strength that we have in Barbados is run making know-how hmm. so it, it's kind of lunacy not to leverage that
0: right I think uh, sometimes the problem you end up seeing is people, uh, particularly with like newer, small scale producers, um, you know, they're producing uh, very small batches. Uh, They want to take the same approach, but they don't necessarily have the skills to justify the premium price yet.
2: Yes. I I don't want to sound unkind, but that's largely true. You know, there is a reason why, say, Barbados and Jamaica are, you know, two of the best grow producing countries in the world. You know we didn't start making rum yesterday
0: <laughs> right i think um you know one of the things uh maggie campbell brought up uh, on that episode when we interviewed her you know she said uh the the u.s has a rum history but it's not a living history mm-hmm. you know um and also wasn't ever really known for being uh a beacon of quality uh for the most part anyway yeah. um you know, I I, I want to uh, return to uh, to to Foursquare eventually, but I also part of you know what we wanted to talk about and have you on right now for uh, was to discuss some of the uh, Barbados rum uh, GI, which uh, you know has been topic. Uh, a topic of discussion, mm-hmm. a hot topic, so to say. Um, you know, and and one of the things there's been so much conversation lately that I think something that gets lost is that this isn't something that you know you and other Barbados producers just started talking about within the last year or so um, you know one thing that I've heard you speak about for several years now is sort of um, this broader transition taking place throughout the Caribbean where you have Producers that historically focused on exporting bulk rum, now developing their own branded rums. And there was an article you shared. uh, It was a 2012 article from Barbados Business Catalyst that I, like, personally for me, offered some really nice context on where... How like the role a GI can play in assisting this transition. so I wanted to ask, why is Barbados motivated to help producers kind of make this shift and how does the GI fit into
2: that that broader
0: context?
2: Well yes, another you can come at it from a, a couple of different angles. From the producer angle, you're out there producing a brand, your own brand, We're out there you know promoting a, a brand called you know Foursquare. But you still have to get the context right. You still have to get the broader category correct. In other words, let me see if I can put it another way. Um, Scotch whiskey brands are individually successful, but they all rest upon the fact that Scotch whiskey is a successful category. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm out there promoting Foursquare, but at the same time, Barbados as a origin is undermined. It then undermines all of my effort. Right. Um, it's a collective. Yeah, correct. So it, it's, it's a case that, you know, you, you have to get this right on all levels. So first of all, if we want to sell super premium rum, the rum category has to be creditable. So you fight on one level of having a creditable rum category. So that's why we raise all these
3: issues. Mm-hmm.
2: Then at the second level is having Barbados as a creditable producer and then yourself as a brand. So you could tick every box as a brand, but if Barbados as a category is poor, that's undermining you. If rum as a category is poor, that is undermining you. So from the producer point of view, it's about protecting the Barbados names, you do everything to protect your intellectual property, which is, in our case, the name Foursquare and our various brands. Mm -hmm. But the GI is then about protecting the intellectual property, Barbados. And one of the things that comes to, to mind, obviously, when you speak about Barbados run, people think, well, that's an origin safe from adulteration that's an origin where the age statements are reliable. So what you want to achieve with a GI is, is that you codify that and you protect that in the countries where you sell. So to illustrate the point, Jamaica is probably the best illustration of the point. Jamaica excise tax 1934 says, you shall not add anything to Jamaican rum other than color. But in the minute that Jamaica rum crosses the border into the United States, the U.S. rules apply. The minute that Jamaica rum crosses the border into the EU, the EU rules apply.
0: Which are different.
2: Right. So what you do with a GIA is you create a bit of intellectual property, and then you go around to the countries and register your intellectual property. It's entirely analogous to a trademark. hmm um, you go around, you create a trademark, four square, you sell four square rum, you go and register the trademark in the EU so that someone else doesn't sell four square rum, which may not be up to the standard that you're making. It's entirely analogous. From that's from the producer side. From the country side, the economic side, all of that of course applies. Mm-hmm. But there's a further step. The country now. Basically, is who owns the IP, Barbados. So they have to make sure that the income that is being earned by Barbados is accruing to the country. So if you have a situation where the product leaves in its lowest economic form and value is added outside, but the product is still trading using the IP of the country. Mm-hmm. What's happened there is and someone else is basically exploiting your IP without the value accruing. So that's why that 2012 article, it said two things, the then minister said with his GI. The first thing we said was we want to create a distinctive product because, of course, you can't boast your product is premium unless it's distinctive. So one, he wanted to get a higher value for Barbados rum. And two, then that's when they talked about, we need to move more bottling of rum, uh, Barbados brands, to being bottled in Barbados, because then that brings the economic activity here. Mm-hmm. So they're there the broad aspects of a GI. I mean, the best thing you can always think about a GI is to understand it really is simply a piece of intellectual property entirely analogous to a trademark on the level of a country right.
1: yes which everyone has to yeah. also agree to uh, in principle yeah and, and i'm i'm
0: curious you know because that goes all the way back to 2012 so what what had to take place between then and now to get you to the point that you're at today um, where you have you know a gi that's been drafted
2: um that's a good question um there were a couple hey, that's a that's a good question because one of the things about an IP is the first thing you have to do is establish the registration and the legislation at home. So all of that had to get into place. There's a, so we now have IP le- uh, GI IP legislation. So,
0: so before there wasn't even a mechanism to enforce a GI. Is, is that there
2: not- was the earlier legislation, but it's further ex- uh, needed. And then internal training of the registrar, this kind of thing. Okay. For example, over in Jamaica, they spent a lot of money. They sent people over to Switzerland. They trained in, in this IP knowledge. So there's, yeah, there's a few uh, ticking of the boxes. Then there was naturally some uh, concerns of ours. Uh, so the process went a little bit cumbersome at first, where the team responsible sort of went around and kind of did their work a little bit in the, too independent of us, which in a sense, in one sense, is the kind of the correct way to do it. But so then their first sort of drafts were a little bit too... Um, too cumbersome and a little bit misunderstood. And then there was naturally, there's always, let's face it, there's always a natural skepticism mm-hmm. or not skepticism, but a concern that when uh government's sort of getting involved in a process that there may be more harm than good. <laughs> so everyone was kind of uh, a little bit weary, mm-hmm. but it's kind of interesting as well because as time went on we could also see the value in it uh you know jamaica did theirs they're working on eu registration so sometimes just like in the ordinary business world of trademarks sometimes when your competition does it you then wake up a little bit so i think jamaica doing it was a little bit of a wake-up call Mm
3: -hmm.
2: because we sort of sat back and thought to ourselves well hang on a minute if Jamaica has a GI and we don't have a GI and Martinique has an AOC and we don't have an AOC, a couple of years time, this may be a problem. So everyone was not really against it. It was going really slowly and it wasn't really that big a priority. And, and I think really that's what's happened. And, and as I say, it's going hand in hand with the success of rum. Hmm. So if I'm investing in more stock and older stock and these fabulous port barrels, et cetera, et cetera, you then become more conscious of the need to protect the reputation of barbarous rum. Because you could be, as I say, you could be making all these wonderful efforts.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: But if at the same time, the rum category is undermined or the barbarous rum category is undermined, you have self-inflicted wounds and that will compromise your own efforts.
0: Sure. So, you know, as, as I understand it, the point where things are now, basically, the Barbados government has tasked um, the, the four major distilleries on Barbados with agreeing on standards for the GI. Yes. So Foursquare, St. Nicholas Abbey, uh, Mount Gay have agreed. Yes. Uh, West Indies Rum Distillery owned by Maison Ferrand um has not so uh my understanding is they have three primary objections uh one the the requirement
2: they object to everything
0: (laughs) (laughs) i think that the ones that have been covered uh you know reported on are the the requirement that all barbados from should be matured on the island a restriction on wood types for aging, and then the ban on sweetening the rum with additives. Correct. So um, I don't know if you want to tackle those all at once or talk about them one by one, or, or maybe get broader.
2: W- Go back to this, this situation of the reputation of barbarous rum. Sure. When, when people think of barbarous rum, they think of two, you know, two obvious things come up. They think of it as an origin safe from sweetening. And they also think of it as an origin that age statements are reliable. So if you go and write a GI that doesn't protect those two elements, you have, you have written a GI that's basically worthless. Because you have not codified two key elements of the present value of your trademark, Barbara this one. And the other thing to understand with that is the GI is not written for us. It's written for anyone. So it's very easy to to be seduced to say oh well this, you know it's just one brand that will do sweetening. you write a GI that allows sweetening and in ten years time every single barbarous is sweetening. Mm-hmm.
1: slippery slope. yeah.
2: yes uh, and then the thing is too is not to get in a debate about the virtues of sweetening.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: what is unequivocally true is that sweetening is a controversial subject. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is, is that the Barbados indigenous distillers have avoided this controversial subject. And so it would be lunacy to enter into it. Because once you open that door, you never close it again. So here you are safely on the side of not entering that controversy, the indigenous brands, the indigenous producers. To volunteer yourself for it is just a, a ludicrous risk with no upside. You just run the risk of removing or adding a, a, a level of controversy or weakness to your brand, your brand identity being Barbarous Run. So it, it doesn't make any sense at all. It, it's, and again, I stress this is not about the four of us. Mm-hmm. This is about Barbarous Run. And that's the most important thing you have to understand. I,
0: I think the the what seems to be the the main rebuttal to, to those to the points you made um, are that there's essentially historical precedent for um, a lot of these things that Maison Ferrand would like to see included well, in the GI. That's
2: nonsense, but it's also nonsense and irrelevant. This caricature of a GI that they have invented, that I, sp- I suppose they do it because it's, it sounds appealing to a layman.
3: Mm. That
2: a GI is that you search through your history book, and you find any nonsense activity and write it down. I mean, if we, if we did that, <laughs> um, uh, Scotch whiskey would be full of prune wine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right uh, right. grapes from champagne wouldn't even come from the Champagne region. I mean, it's just a nonsensical argument, mm. this idea that you comb through history. Yeah. And, in, and the other part that's so nonsensical is this idea that, yes, we were all sweetening rum and somehow we just forgot to do it today. <laughs> and when you look at it, the oldest brands, whether it's Mount Gay, whether it's Martin Dorley, go and look at the brands in Jamaica, Appleton, brands in Martinique. How come all these old brands forgot this age old practice, this alleged age old practice?
0: Yeah, lost to the history books.
2: And that's not to be confused with the fact to say that there wasn't adulteration. There's adulteration in every spirit. But that's the whole point. You don't go back and look at adulteration that was rife in Scotch mm-hmm. whiskey and in rum and in every spirit. And then, and then look back on that really bad period.
1: And justify, yeah.
2: Where we've moved away from that. And, you know, that's the whole purpose of, of codifying Scotch whiskey laws, the whole purpose of. You know, Jamaica's Excise Tax Act back in 1934, banning these things. The whole purpose of these exercises is to remove these nefarious practices of the past, but to now somehow uh, romanticize them. And of course, selectively, because, you know, if that's the logic that something happened in the past, so therefore it's a GI. Well, there's no end to the possibilities of what you would now put in the realm. So, you know, instead of having a GI to protect the integrity of the product, you'd be now having a GI that it's guaranteed to to destroy the credibility of the product.
1: Yeah. And on that note, and you mentioned kind of at the outset when we talked started talking about GIs that this is a hot topic. Are there aspects about the conversation that you see happening online and at events and such for rum that you wish they people would focus on a little bit more, or perhaps less in terms of the GI conversation, Um, or like you know frequent talking points you find are counterproductive?
2: No, I mean I've been I've been very pleasantly surprised with the GI conversation online because I think most people get it, and you know there's always a, a risk that a topic like GI might be misunderstood, but people understand it really well. They they understand that the barbarous rum, you know, if I write the words 10-year-old barbarous rum, it 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 should mean a rum aged 10 years in Mm barbarous Um you know they get that. People get it. People and people of course know that the reputation of barbarous rum is not with sweetening. So it resonates with people that they want to keep this origin protected they respect the fact they know that we're the indigenous brands. i mean my father's been you know bottling rum since 1961 i think at the last count i can remember we've done nine different brands um they never had sugar syrup so i think people respect the fact that Barbados does it differently and i'm talking even the people who happily drink sweetened rums they they think well okay um You know, I like a sweetened rum, but the sweetened rum is, you know, a rum from, uh, you know, Central or South America. Mm -hmm. And they want the diversity of rum protected. I mean, that's one of the great ironies of this conversation is how do you speak in one breath uh, about protecting or respecting diversity and at the same time wanting to compromise it?
0: Right. Kind of if you don't have uh, guidelines, at least, then how do you create the distinctions that allow diversity to happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the signature of Barbados, and Jamaica, and Martinique, and and that we don't reach for the for the sweeteners and the flavorings, notwithstanding the nefarious practices of the past.
1: So, with all that in mind, what do you think the next step is for this? Uh, do you think there's a consensus possible here, or
2: no, no, there'll never be a consensus. Yeah,
1: are we left with just continuing to move the ball forward as much as possible? You think, or
2: um. Well, basically, the the GI was a work of government agency called um, BIDC, Borrowers Industrial Development Corporation. Mm-hmm. They worked in conjunction with lawyers trained on IP matters. They have drafted the the document. Um, the ultimate decision is the minister of government for under whose portfolio it rests. From the last meeting, it was very obvious that the minister is wholly in support of of us. He wants a GI as has been drafted. But we know machinations have dragged it out to this point. And so we know there will be political machinations that may continue to drag it out. But we will continue to make our case and support the efforts of the professionals. And just hope that the politicians don't undo the work of the professionals, because that's that's the only real risk right now.
0: So then, I, I know kind of the initial wish list from the government was that everyone would agree on it. But it sounds like there is a scenario where you know even if there isn't 100% consensus, um, it, you know you have 75% consensus at this point. So maybe that will be good enough at some point for the government to move on anyway.
2: Yes, and this is this has been our, our position.
0: Got it. So at that point, let's say the GI is eventually agreed upon. Obviously, the next step uh, is, is getting foreign governments to recognize and respect and enforce it. Uh, Correct. Yeah, then the, <laughs> right. the, the
2: real, you know, the, <laughs> the real meaningful work start. Because what happens is when we register the GI here, that means the GI is implemented in Barbados. Right. Um uh, but really the, the, mm-hmm. the you know the main job is outside.
0: So I, I would imagine you're maybe approaching the EU first, or do you I mean are you even
2: focused? Yes. yes, EU is first because the EU is is um you know easily one of the most important markets, but also the EU provides a mechanism um for recognition of GIs. So you know, they basically give you a a, a roadmap. Uh, and a procedure
0: so the u.s does not make it as easy
2: no the u.s is uh, next to impossible a whole different uh situation there it's a completely different approach having said that establishing the gi is still a weapon in the potential uh of getting the u.s to recognize Barbados rum or Jamaica rum in the same way that they recognize Scotch whiskey or French cognac or whatever. They basically don't recognize it as a a GI. What they do is they simply, the TTB basically says uh, Scotch whiskey sold in the US and must meet the laws of the United Kingdom. They add it to the the code of regulations. Yes. So so that's what would have to happen. Uh, We would have to get, the US to state that, uh, yeah, basically codify. This is similar, but not exactly the same as what they did with Cachaca. Mm. Uh, what they got with Cachaca was the ability to not have to put the word rum on the label. Mm-hmm. But as far as the Americans are concerned, Cachaca is a rum, and that's not what the Brazilians feel or an answer, and we agree with the Brazilians, but they did allow them Uh, Until they got that change, a cachaça producer who, as far as they're concerned, were making cachaças when it was sold to America, America was basically saying, well, no, you can't label it what you think it is. You have to label it as rum.
1: Right. That doesn't sound
2: like the U.S. at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, And so, you know, that's a far worse scenario when, when you arrive in a country and they tell you, well, your product's not even what you think it is. Um, so that was a big, big win for them. Uh, and that was not easy. So yes, I could, I can hopefully dream of a future where Jamaica rum or Barbados rum is protected in the US and the GI would be the first step, right. mm-hmm. but, but there's no smooth road from GI to recognition in the U.S., that's very challenging.
0: Well, last year the the TTB did accept some public comments on some updates they were making, and I uh, perhaps perhaps futilely submitted a comment <laughs> with my own thoughts.
2: Yes, and in conjunction with with Maggie, we we all submitted. Yes, I,
0: I saw she was she was one of the few to do a lot of uh, advocacy in her comment for uh, respecting, uh, right. you know, things from the international community, like um, some of the the agricultural standards and, and things like that as well. So yes. um, hopefully there will be some some ways for uh, Americans in the US to support the effort. Yes. And
2: we worked with Maggie because she was wearing her her hat of as, um,
0: the ACSA. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, yes. So that was so so you know, yes. Yeah. so she's been a, a tremendous ally to us and it was good to channel through her with because of her her status. Yeah.
1: So uh, shifting things back to Foursquare specifically a little bit, one of the ways that I know many, many rum drinkers, including myself, come to know Foursquare is through your exceptional cask selection releases. And uh, you just released uh, what I believe is the 11th exceptional cask selection, Sagacity. It's a blended pot and column, and it's distilled uh, aged 12 years in ex-Bourbon and ex-Madeira casks. So I love those releases. I know Will as well. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what the actual process looks like for selecting those barrels and how many people are involved? And how often does your team try to select that and taste it and, and cultivate it?
2: So what happens, it's um, it's not that um, sophisticated a process. Well, there's got to be some art to it, right? It's um, We're a pretty small entity. So it is done quite casually. And in fact, my son loves to make fun of me. <laughs> um, in comparison to sort of big entities, he will laugh and say that I'll just nip into the lab and Put some rums together and poof, there's a new um, release. <laughs> um, and whereas, you know, a bigger entity might go through a far greater ordeal. Um, effectively, it'll start with what's coming of age. Right. So it's not like I have to look in the entire warehouse and try to pick. So it'll be, you know, what's turning 10, 11, 12, 13. You know, you're, it's what's coming of age and then you know we you pull to suit and and yes it, it, as i say it is pretty pretty casual uh what i will do then is pull something and then i'll taste it with with my team
1: and how big is your team with that
2: well so my team will be not that big we're nice and small so we have two sort of tasting teams over the distillery it will be um myself my what you would call my cellar master, mm-hmm. who manages all the barrels, and uh, what you would also call my chemist—we um, don't really give ourselves much titles. They, we will peep at rums going into the barrel and rums as they come out the barrel. Mm-hmm. So not that team doesn't necessarily do the finished blend. It doesn't do the finish blend. So we might have a look at stuff coming out of the barrel on that side, and then when we put together blends for the exceptional gas, my team on the bottling side. Will be my master blender, Peter, and the plant manager, KB. They're two keen tasters as well. Obviously, well, obviously, Peter is the, mm-hmm. the, the, the blender. Uh, and three of us will taste. And then, to be honest with you, then we take it outside. So at Miami, we were showing ability mm-hmm. And, you know, I had some people whose opinion that I, I respect. You know, they'll have a taste and I'll go have a nice chat with them. So it's, it's pretty, pretty informal.
0: Would you still make adjustments to uh, something like nobiliary, for example, at this point?
2: Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah.
0: Did you hear anything that led you to maybe consider a change?
2: No, actually, so far in the feedback on the has been pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I didn't make it to Rome Congress, but John was there, and he yeah. was and he was sending me a lot of texts about uh, sagacity, nobiliary, and, and everything. And I, I was I was at home, not jealous at all.
2: <laughs> I mean, treat, treats do get made. I know that because those are lab samples. What will happen is is that when we start to go to the bottling, that's when things start to get fatty. Actually, that leads me really to actually more describe the process. And the process on the vintages is a little, actually a little more straightforward. What will happen with the vintages, for example, we're going to do 2008. We'll start pulling barrels
3: mm-hmm.
2: and vatting them uh, because 2008 is straightforward. The vintages are straightforward. It's all ice So we'll start pulling and vatting and tasting and vatting and tasting. So as the vat is increasing, we're tasting. So then we'll just adjust as the tank is being filled. And then you get to the stage so where we pull that. So that's not a lab sample. That's one in the you know that's vatted, and then I'll taste with my bottling team, and then we might take it out to a few people. But that one's mm-hmm. um, sort of built up with taste and, and and do that. So that's actually slightly different. Something like Sagacity. Sagacity will pull samples from the barrels, do a little blend in the lab and you saw you were happy with it and then whenever you do the final bottling there's always a little adjustment because you're now not pulling a a single cast sample from a particular batch that's going in the blend you're now emptying the whatever number of barrels that is you know the component yeah and so you get the final thing and then you you adjust uh, and, and invariably, without fail, the final version pulled from the barrels is always better than what we've done in the lab. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: Well, if you need a couple extra taste testers, there, you know, <laughs> we're <laughs> we're happy to to join the team.
2: Uh, I'm that it is very casual because. Don't forget that the whole process you have to remember from beginning is very long. So, you know, in other words, the vintages are 12 years old, 2008. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing has taken a long time. So, you know, in other words, much of the result is a little bit preordained, if you might say. Mm. If we either have some good stuff yeah. there to put together or we don't. Yeah.
0: Right. There's only so many adjustments that could be made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: What's going to happen now is not going to make the difference between average or grade. Right.
0: You know, I think you described it as a very casual process. Um, You know, to me, I think that's part of what appeals to so many, you know, rum drinkers about the brand is that they know your fingerprints are on it. And obviously, that includes your team, too, uh, as well. But, you know, it's you're very present at events online. uh, There's that connection people have with it. So I think that's something that, you know, is is special about the brand to people. Um, You know, one of the things, you know, we mentioned Sagacity, Nobiliary, um, one of the things that stick out to people always are the names of these releases. Uh, this it wasn't an exceptional cast release, but Pleno Potentiario is another one. Yeah. Names that, you know, might stick out a little bit on the shelf. And I've always, you know, just been curious in terms of like, how do you ar- arrive at some of these? Do you have a process? And I, I even noticed that on, I think the labels for Sagacity and Nobiliary, it looks like you've added Meaning, a yeah. label on the back that has a short little definition of the word.
2: Yes. Well, I always wanted to, um, well, let's, okay, let's go back a, a little step. How did the ECS came about? The ECS came about, um, there's several motivations for the ECS. The first mm-hmm. one was in 1998 release. Motivations come from different directions. One would be going to the shows and you know, you'd know you be there with with the guys in the industry, the sommeliers, the buyers you know, who know your core range and they're always interested to say, well, can I try a sample of this or a cast sample of that? And so you sort of get the idea, well, hang on a minute. Why don't I do special releases? And another motivation, a little bit was, you know, from my winemaking colleagues, I would always be very jealous of the fact that in spirits, we were a little bit obsessed with making everything taste identical. Right. And wine colleagues were just very happy to slap a new vintage every year. Um, and be happy that it reflects this particular year.
0: Consistency isn't always the goal. Yeah,
2: exactly, no. And, and so that was also the motivation. And I think too, there's a little bit about trying to be a little more dynamic. And I think capitalizing a little bit on our flexibility, on as what my son teases me that I can sort of run in the lab and say, oh, this is, this is something nice, let's try and do this without having to commit to create a new skew, a new permanent skew, and all the investment that that requires. So there was that all, all of that, that sort of um, motivation. And then I always wanted to to name them, mm-hmm. but we started out very conservatively. So with the first one, we gave it vintage, and I always will do a vintage, and I'll keep the vintage a kind of a core. In other words, always bourbon cast, you know, kind of a sort of minimum age. Um, but I always want to name, but as I say, we started very conservatively. So, like the poor cast, we named a poor cast.
1: Yeah, Zen cask, yeah.
2: Because we just it just didn't seem credible to to start off with names. And the first one probably I named was Triptych. And That also explains a little bit the the process of the naming. Sometimes the name inspires the rum, and sometimes the rum inspires the name. So, Triptych was a blend of three different vintages from three different casts. So, you can imagine that inspired the name Triptych.
0: Right. So, you have some cases in which you come up with a name first, and then try to create the blend that matches that name? Yes. What what are some examples where you've done that?
2: so, Triptych definitely was rum first, then name.
0: Premise sounds like a rum first, then name. Yes.
2: Uh, premise came first. Right. Uh, Plenty Potentiario came afterwards. I'm sure you're asking it because what we've done with Plenty Potentiario is that it's uh, we've used both the light and heavy rums from the column as well as the classic pot still rums. And we pulled some very what we thought were some very concentrated cask very high evaporation and so i kind of had this feeling that with plenipotentiario i was pulling together a rum of you know sort of max power right so that led me to the english word plenipotentiary but then as a homage to my colleague mm-hmm. and good friend luca i love to give the rums uh, italian names so we to call it plenty potentiario. so yeah, it goes it goes a little bit both ways. I love it. That's great.
0: Um, and you know, you mentioned sometimes you have names that don't yet have a rum. Yes. Are, are there any names you know you're going to use that that you haven't found the right rum yet for?
2: Oh yes, oh. yes, I have a whole book. <laughs>
0: a whole book, really.
2: Every time I come up with a name, I go write it down.
0: <laughs> do you, do you get much do you get much pushback from your team on any of the names, or are these very much executive decision type things?
2: Um, I think my son thought that I had really lost it with plenty of
0: uh, by the way, I saw a picture um, from Ian Burrell, I think, the other day, posing with a uh, Calvados cask uh, filled with four square rum, which I think is something we haven't seen before as consumers. Right.
2: That's um, my first set of Calvados casks.
0: Okay. So is, is that something we're likely to see anytime soon? Ah
2: or, or, uh, soonish? That soon-ish? rum is nine years old, so it's not going to be far off. Um, okay. I'm actually a little angry at myself for not using Calvados casks earlier.
0: Really? Big, just because the early returns seem promising?
2: Well, because of all the spirits out there, uh, probably my favorite spirit after Rome is Calvados. Okay. Uh, secondly, Calvados casks are a very old casks. So those, those ones in mm-hmm. particular, they had been used originally for uh, red wine, then they were used for port, uh, and then they were used for Calvados. So they're really, really lovely, all really well seasoned casks. And... um And that's what I I love to work with um, because I buy tons and tons of lovely, fresh first fill ex bourbons, So I'm no shortage of lovely, lots of, you know, new wood character. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you go and try to seek something different, um, we actually want to get very old cats. Mm -hmm. This works very well for, I mean, I can argue it works well for all the ECS, but, you know, I, I think some <laughs> notable ones would be like Four Square 2006, the Valier release where we did it uh, three years in Bourbon, and then it spent seven years in some very old cognac casks.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That was a really, really, you know, very successful release. Um, Criterion mm-hmm. uh, was three years in Bourbon and then seven years in very old ex-Madeiras. So we love to, Dominus also use some very old casks. Um, it, again, you know, it's all about about balance and the rums and 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 all the rest of it. So I try to have. I mean, those casts I just mentioned earlier—they're very, very old. So the ones that you recently acquired? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I should have been used because Calvados traditionally uses quite old casts. So I have more Calvados since then, but yes, uh, and the rums very, very lovely. It's it's good. I'm very, very happy with it. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what turns up from that. Um, you know, an, another release that people have really come to love is Probitas, if you're in the U.S. Veritas, if you're yes. in Europe. Um, you know, one of the unique things, obviously, is that it was, I think, the first time that two Caribbean distilleries kind of came together, produce, bottle, and sell their own blended rum as a joint venture. Yeah, that's correct. So I, I I've always been curious. Obviously, it's between you and, and Hampton. Yes. By the way, for anyone who hasn't experienced it yet, if you haven't, go get a bottle. It's 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 a really great rum um, staple for me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been curious. So, how, how did that partnership come about? How do you start that conversation? And what does the process look like of two distilleries? Okay. Let me give you this the
2: maybe the the, the real long version. Okay. Um, We've got time. So, <laughs> so, so Luca came to me a few years ago with the mission. So Luca's mission is a whole other topic to really develop pure single rounds, the 100% still category. Yeah. Uh, and also the blended category. In other words, Luca really wants to promote still rounds. So either in their pure form or the black models are for the blended forms. Right. Um, so, so Luca came to me to, to me years ago and I'd also known, knew the, the Hussey family a little bit, knew Christelle a little bit at that time. Uh, and knew they had bought Hamden, and knew that they were for the first time aging some Hamden rum. So I said to Luca, "I said, Luca, you 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 know you have to look at Hamden rum. I mean." And he met them that rum fest uh, that year, it was a few years ago, um, and they were bringing some samples of Hamden. And of course, Luca fell in love with the Hamden rum. Uh, Understandable. As in, I mean, he knew Hamden Rum, but this was the Hamden Rum aged in Jamaica, you know, Mm -hmm. as as Luca would say, the the real Hamden. Mm -hmm. Um, And then out of that meeting, he planned a visit to Jamaica. And he said to me, well, I have to come too. (laughs) Uh, Darn. We spent (laughs) this uh, wonderful weekend at the Great House, staying at the Great House, with Christelle and her family, Luca, myself. And we had one of these sort of And it was Christelle's uh, birthday. So we had one of these incredible last weekends where all we did was talk about rum, drink rum, Mm -hmm. get inspired by everything remarkable that's going on at Hamden. And out of that was born then several things. And one of them was Lucas and Hamden's partnership, which you're seeing uh, come to fruition today. Right, the estate bottlings. And the idea of, doing a white rum uh, in the in the sort of now if i want to just think of hang on a minute why am i using color <laughs> in the caribbean we always use the term white rum right so mm. term. but doing a white rum that's going to be beautiful in drinks but in other words one of the motivations of luca was is that he really want cocktails but with a rum that's very flavorful he wants to get away from these very, very neutral style rums. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
2: so that was kind of one of his challenges and one I want to do it. And then out of that was was born this idea that, you know, Handon and Foursquare, we must do a collaboration. Um, all these other, you know, there are many, as you know, many blended island rums available. But they're all done in Europe. Right, None of them are a true collaboration. Mm-hmm. And you know we're not knocking the other ones because you know if someone makes a great product blending the islands together, Europe, all credit to them. But we just wanted to do one that was genuinely a collaboration from start to finish. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And that was how uh, that was how it was born. So it was it was you know Lucas part of Lucas' motivation was creating, as they say, he wanted to create a very um, flavorful but flexible. Um, and I think you know my mixology friends will understand this you can go and have some you can go there and find them incredibly flavorful white rums but it doesn't always make them quite as flexible right
3: Mm -hmm.
2: right and that's why so many of the guys then jump to the super light runs because they're flexible Hmm. Uh, so the idea was to create something that was both flavorful and flexible you know Hmm. Yes, they're brilliant white rum. I mean, rum fires is, is, you know, as good of a white rum as you're ever going to find from Hamlet. Yeah. But we wanted something that was just uh, a little more flexible. Luca wanted me to do it completely unaged. But for me, there's just something about I, I did a couple initial blends and it had my pot still in there unaged. And there was just something that was just not right for me hmm. because I'm not accustomed to drinking my pot still in an unaged form. hmm. Uh, or in certainly in any prevalent way, and so it just didn't didn't make sense to me. So we, you know, when I tasted it, and so we ended up with a rum with three rums: my aged pot still and two other unaged rums, being one being my unaged column and and um, Hamden's unaged pot. So um, that's how we ended up doing. it, Yeah, and and it's gone really really well. Um, it's been super well received. I mean, we're just we're just thrilled.
1: Well, in that being the case, is that collaboration over with, or is there a future there to continue? No,
2: there's always things, there's always, you'll be amazed that some of the people I've had conversations with about future collaborations. In terms of Hamden, probably not in the sense that they're going to focus very much their age stocks on their brand, which they, you know, they need to do. Mm -hmm. But there may be some other collaborations in the future. Hmm.
1: So uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you talked about your father and you and how he's kind of been the risk taker and uh, you've been focused on the product side of things. And at looking back at the history of Foursquare and seeing that the company started a long time ago with, uh, you know, purchasing rum and selling rum. and, And then in the mid 90s, there was you and your father who made the big decision to start distilling rum on your own. Yes. So I was hoping, and I think maybe you already gave us an inkling into why that is, but I was hoping for a little bit more of an insight into how did that idea come about, and was that a difficult decision?
2: Well, when we look back on it now, I, I must admit we do look braver than, than, <laughs> than I was thinking at the time. <laughs> um, I guess I was younger then. Uh, what happened was, is yes, our history is merchant, merchant uh, bottlers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how rum was sold in Barbados. Um, distillers were forbidden um, by law from selling directly. Mm-hmm. So all of the rum went through merchant traders. So they'd buy from the, the distilleries and and do their blends. And one of the things that we have done is over the years, we've acquired uh, several of these brands and famously, you know, Martin Dorley. Martin Dorley was a, a contemporary of my great-grandfather, another merchant bottler blender. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are now actually the last surviving of the Robot Street merchant bottlers. They're all gone we're, we're We're the last. and certainly, as the business grew as you say with consolidation and and, and my father's very, very successful in growing growing around business he he was keen to buy a distillery. he tried to buy one in ninety one. um I won't tell you which one, but you can <laughs> okay. you can guess um, process of elimination. Yeah, it's not hard to figure. out. Uh, <laughs> it's north of us. Um, uh, that didn't work out, uh, but the main driver was in 1993 we purchased the Martin Dorley brand and the Ali Nath brand, and so that was the that's when the we became the last of the the historic Roebuck Street tradition. Mm-hmm. And Martin Dorley was a very prestigious brand um, through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It had merged with Ali Nath in the 70s and then it definitely seemed to be in decline from the 80s. It was owned by a large group which was in financial trouble and what they did is they were selling off assets, good assets, and that's how we came to acquire the brand. But it changed everything because with the Martin Dolly brand, we had a situation where we owned this. I mean, our brands are old too, but Martin Doley really, and by this really very prestigious brand mm brand with a history of exporting whereas you know we'd never exported a a drop and so it changed completely our outlook we we realized that we we wanted to export we realized that we wanted to invest in stocks you know grow age stocks and and you know we you know we had a little but you know it's different when you're producing it Mm -hmm. and um and so that was the motivation to to say, look, no, we, the only way we're going to achieve this is to distill. And of course, by that time, too, you're also trying to, you're trying to control your quality of what you're buying, and mm-hmm. um, you want to control, you know, you want to control your destiny. So that was a major change, and it also was a major impact for me, because although I was always going to join the family business, it wasn't necessarily that rum was going to be a big part of my life um you know we're merchant traders we trade other products but i joined the company formally in 93 the same exact same time that my father purchased the brands i had no input in that decision and so i literally joined the company at the very time that he wants to build a distillery and he he basically said right i don't have the technical background on distilling you know yeah you know a bit about rum but so he just he turned it over to me and said you know Go and build a distillery. Was that exciting or <laughs> a little bit scary or yeah, at that age, yeah. Now it'd be scary, but back then it was it was it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally we were thinking of a green field site. But Foursquare is about a mile away from my father's home. And it's something, you know, we grew up where was a sugar factory, and you know, back in the day, sugar factories are very noisy and certainly something that was very prominent in, in your life. well for every Barbie sugar factories were prominent in life at that time. there were, there were many yeah. of them they kept a lot of noise and they smelt really wonderful yeah. and and so and that whole valley where Foursquare is, there's a whole line of former sugar factories there because it's excellent source of water. And I said to my father, we can source water from Foursquare because it's a closed factory and it has this fabulous well and you know it's excellent water and he says well why don't we just put the distillery there why not (laughs) and that was that and the rest as they say is history that's great so at this point
0: you don't necessarily have the technical background in distilling yet am i correct in that yes so, what was the process like at that point um, in terms of, of training? What was your what was your first step now that well, you... People ask, people
2: ask this, and I think the important thing to understand is that it's not about your training in distillery, it's about your training in rum. Right, and tasting. And I think when we go back to some of those small craft distillers, the, the problem is, is not their distillation knowledge. The problem is, is that what comes out at the end, they have no idea that it's not very good. Right. And the reason why we could build a distillery and make good rum is because we had great heritage in rum. I'd grown up in rum. We had very experienced blenders in rum. So if there's one thing we knew is what it was supposed to be when it comes out the still. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the most important knowledge of all. But yeah, no, I mean, obviously, we, yeah, we worked with with great people. And again, some of the decisions we made, I, I look, I do look back and, and and I'm very happy because, you know, at that time, everything was obsessed with making uh, very, very light rums and everyone, you know, said, oh, we had to make rum like Bacardi. I mean, people, it's hard to conceive that today, but we're going back to 1993. Yeah, right. And so when we were putting in this very classic twin column coffee still, People said, I'm, I'm mad. I'm, this is wrong. This <laughs> what are you doing? Still, yeah, this is going to make this, you know, this, this is not what people want. People want, um, you know, Bacardi. They want light rum. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is not going to sell. But for me, I as I say, I, I look back and I think, how did I get it right? But Maybe everyone telling me I was doing it wrong, maybe uh, yeah <laughs> it's a little bit of a motivator, yeah, no, I mean, but again, okay. I grew up in Rome and, and yeah, you know, so w- we were very were very clear in what we wanted to achieve, and then that that's the most important thing. It's not about the engineering skill, I mean, as it turns out, I do know my way around it still, <laughs> but I would still honestly tell you that's not the most important thing,
1: but it helps, yeah. And one of the things I was going to mention is that it makes sense in the sense of, you know, you are from the Rum a rum family. Yes. So it's in your blood, as one might say. Yes. And so that that helps too. And in recognition of that history of Foursquare, um, I did a little bit of the research and you would tell me uh, better than I could know, but roughly the 1920s was when Foursquare was officially started.
2: Oh, no, that that's mixing up our history with Foursquare. So Foursquare is very, very old. Way older than us. Uh-huh. If you go to the oldest maps in Barbados, sixteen hundreds, you will see the area designated as Foursquare, and there were would, would be, there's several plantations in the area known as Foursquare. So that so the area now occupied by Foursquare, you know, in the sixteen hundreds, there were like three or four owners of individual estates there. Got it. Uh, eventually, there's a large enough single estate that takes the name from the area and is named Foursquare. And this is very and this is quite common. Um, next door to Foursquare, not far, for example, is another estate called Conga Road Plantation. And if you look in the earliest maps, the whole area is known as Conga Road, but then eventually there becomes a plantation called Congo Road. And of course, that's quite amusing because how on earth do you get a name called Conga Road? People <laughs> often ask the name, how did the name Foursquare come about? And they're and the reason for that is before there were plantations, the area was called Square Pond. And, mm-hmm. and as I say, the, the area is a very flat area and uh, with a great supply of water. So presumably before agriculture, it must have flooded regularly in the form of a square pond. So the area became known as Four Square, and then the single plantation that kind of sort of survived. And you can identify when you look at these oldest maps before there's a single single name plantation foursquare you can identify the small plantation that then did become Foursquare.
3: square
2: mm. the oldest building on foursquare is about 1730s it's a building uh old oh, cut wow. coral stone building yes and it's designated yeah. by the National Trust as a building of both historical and uh architectural interest and it's a sort of classic mm-hmm. original Barbadian boiling house. So the original Foursquare had a windmill as all the estates did. And in that 1730s building, they did sugar molasses and rum, as was the norm. Barbados rum affected by the American Revolution, mm-hmm. 1784, and a big hurricane in 1780. So loss of the American market. So Barbados virtually is a non-exporter in the 1800s. This, there's a brief period in the 1850s where it jumps up to a very modest amount of uh, about 100,000 gallons a year for a couple of years. But generally speaking, the 1800s were in, because of the loss of the American market. Mm-hmm. And so there's a reduction in the states. And at some point, Foursquare does not make rum anymore in that period. Mm-hmm. But it grows as a sugar estate. It's um, 1867, it's converted to steam. And by the turn of the century, Foursquare is... If not the largest, it's kind of one of the top three estates of the island. In 1910 or thereabouts, it's consolidated. The estate is split off from the factory and it becomes one of the central sugar factories of the island. And by that, what I mean is, is that it doesn't crush just its own cane anymore. It takes cane from estates. There's a big transformation in the industry at this point. Where small estates don't crush their own cane but send it to larger, more efficient vacuum pan sugar factories.
0: Mm-hmm. Shifting away from the muscovado
2: sugar. Yes, instead of making Moscovado. And Foursquare is one of these because it's quite a large estate. It becomes one, and of course, it's in a great location, great water supply. I see. So Foursquare continues in the 20th century as exclusively a sugar and molasses factory. It then closes in 1988 and we purchased it in 94 and by 96 we're making rum again so it's a really really old estate and it's kind of seen everything uh, so it was originally one of the estates you know wind driven making everything became one of the steam driven consolidated factories and now back again making rum and crushing a little cane we have a little, we do do we so we mainly use molasses but we also crush a little cane as well hmm. So it's come full circle. Yeah. Full circle from estate crushing cane and making rum right through a couple hundred years later back to estate crushing cane making a little rum. Got it. But yeah, that history is old and independent of us until 1994. Uh, and, and that was nice. As I say, when my father suggested Foursquare, it was kind of wonderful because what you were doing was coming to an old, an old estate with a history. And one of the interesting things as well is is that that old 1730s building was called the stillhouse in the modern era. So all of the factory workers in and the factory manager because this is the last manager of the factory, was mm-hmm. um, a friend of my family's, and they by that time the, this old building was being used as a storehouse, you know it had spares and stuff, but they called it the stillhouse. So long after it had stopped distilling, it still kept its name. It was just waiting for you. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course that's what's also happened at Nicholas Abbey, is that you know Nicholas again wonderful old estate rum history right back to the 1600s, stopped crushing its own cane in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. May may or may not have been making rum then, but certainly would have been making rum up to the 19th century. Yeah, um, stopped in the early 20th century when a one of the central factories opened nearby and then so larry warren purchased the estate resurrected the sugar mill and also then resurrected the the rum history by putting in a still again Hmm. so it's quite wonderful to see these old estates um sort to come back to life in in the rum world yeah.
1: You mentioned something that was kind of interesting uh, to me. My day job, I uh, deal with emergency preparedness for hurricanes here in Miami for a higher education institution. And you mentioned hurricanes there and one that happened way back in 1780. But obviously, their hurricanes are still coming through today. Have you all done anything at all in terms of uh, insulating or thinking ahead about how hurricanes affect the area? Or is that just something you figure if it comes, we
2: weather well, it, it? it? Yeah, it's it's very hard because what well, this is is, is actually relatively lucky we don't get severe hurricanes very often Mm -hmm. so it's actually quite hard to predict just what a severe hurricane might do last one was 1955 that was very severe oh wow there were others that were significant but not as severe as 1955 since then it's hard to know at what threshold where where it could be significant obviously when the hurricanes went through Puerto Rico, you know, I spoke with with Roberto Cerrajes from from you know Don Q. It's like, well, how did you get through? You know, because yeah, because you know, the truth is, the amount of barrels and stuff we have weren't there years ago, so it's Mm -hmm. very hard to know exactly what the risks are. Yeah, but as I say, fortunately, Barbados is is usually spared very severe um, hurricanes. Mm.
0: Richard, you mentioned that um, you're growing some cane there now, correct?
2: Well, Foursquare Estate always grew cane, So when it became a central factory, Foursquare Estate split from Foursquare Factory. So when we purchased it, we purchased Foursquare Factory separate to the estate. So we're surrounded by an estate that grows cane, which is independent of us. Okay. Um, What we do is crush cane. We actually don't get the cane from Foursquare Estate. And the reason for that is is that we get the cane from St. George, where from a farmer who still hand cuts. Oh, wow. So Foursquare Estate being one of the bigger estates, machine cuts. Okay. And for the rum we want to make and the juice we want to make, um, we prefer the hand cut. So it could happen in the future, but right now it's just easier for us to actually work with a smaller estate than our neighbor's Foursquare for what we're doing. But I could see us in the future growing our own at, you know, right on Foursquare Estate. Got it. And we also take, um, I should also mention, we also take juice, uh, we don't mill it. We'll take the juice from Nicholas Abbey. Okay. Yeah. So so every year we now have, uh, so we have, uh, you know, molasses, but we also have juice, which we crush and juice, which we get from Nicholas Abbey.
0: And are are you producing any rums from the juice?
2: Oh, yes. This year will be my fifth crop. So we haven't started yet. We're going to start very shortly. And we've actually put in a second mill for this year. So, and we're still going to continue to take from, from Nicholas. Um, yeah, we have a nice, um, uh, symbiotic relationship there with Nicholas. They want to run the mill for the tourists, but he can crush more than he can distill, so I buy the juice. Everyone's happy.
0: And are, are any of the cane juice rums you're making, are those available on the market anywhere or? No,
2: no, 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 no not yet.
0: Okay. Just something you're, you're working on? Yes. Oh, fascinating. I'll be interested to see, uh, hopefully what those, what those look like someday. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for joining us. Um that, that brings us to the end of our normal questions. Um we do have an optional rapid fire question segment, uh, which I will let John tell you about now.
2: Forgot about that. I remember when you did it to <laughs> Okay, so you've you've <laughs>
0: experienced it on Maggie's episode then. I, I
2: listened to Maggie's one, yes. Okay.
0: Did did you enjoy it? Yes. Do you think you will enjoy participating in it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I'll I'll let John take it from here um, if, if you are interested in indulging us.
2: Yes, go on.
1: All right, so obviously you listen to the other ones. You know this is meant to be less serious and a, and a bit fun uh, and a bit silly. So uh, the idea is I'm just going to give you pretty much uh, options, and we're looking for really short answers and quick answers so we can get to as many of these in one minute as possible. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and start, and then uh, you go ahead and answer, and right. we'll go through it. I'll start the timer and tell you when you hit a minute. All right. Um, go. Neat or on the rocks? Neat. Column, pot, or blend? Blend. All right. Your personal favorite exceptional cast series release? The next one. <laughs> Good answer. The Windows logo also has four squares in it. Are you a PC guy or a Mac guy? Mac. All right. What country not named Barbados or Jamaica makes the best rum in the world? Martinique. Are your favorite person to share a bottle of rum with? Uh, Ian Burrell all right are you resentful that gosling's rum used a seal as their mascot before you ever had a chance to no (laughs) (laughs) if foursquare did have an animal mascot what would it be
2: uh well he does well okay macaw
1: okay your favorite meal to pair with an amazing aged rum
2: uh, pasta.
1: All right. When picking names for the Exceptional Cast series, do you consult a thesaurus, a dictionary, neither, or both?
2: Uh, I will check the, the dictionary just to make sure that I <laughs> my understanding is correct. Okay. There have been 11... All right. th- oh, nice. All right. I, actually, I give you a little extra.
0: Thank you, Richard. You're very welcome. Thank you for being a good sport, Richard.
2: No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it.
1: all right well that's gonna do it for episode four of the rum cast um thank you all for listening to that and uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um we want to make sure you know you can get more information on foursquare by following them on social media whether on facebook or instagram uh, and generally you will see richard seal uh, around pretty much everywhere on social media and
0: he's he's no stranger to jumping into uh, rum conversations online
1: yeah so if there was anything that was like a follow-up that we didn't get to this time uh, i'm sure you could just uh straight up ask him on social media, he would be happy to answer that. We also want to make sure that uh, information that we talked about will be in the show notes so you can find out more information on some of the things we spoke about uh, for this episode. And we hope uh, that if you enjoyed the episode that you will be also inclined to give us a review and uh, subscribe on our various channels. We are on Facebook and Instagram, The Rumcast, and also rumcast.com, uh, of course, and Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. We would really, really appreciate it if you give us a review. And-
0: yeah, and that's no lie. Uh, we are on spotify now and google Podcasts, so we truly should be wherever you get your podcasts Um, but yes ratings reviews uh, always helpful any feedback you have tell us what we could be doing better we'd love to hear it Um, but for now i think that is all for this episode so john i will talk to you again soon
1: have one last question I would say finally why is the rum gone I have no idea (laughs) okay (laughs) we can cut that part (laughs)